Amen. Well, I trust it's already been encouraging for you to be here this morning and hear the reading of the word, to be able to hear corporate prayers together, to be able to sing together. It's just such a good time for on these Sunday mornings. And we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke again this morning. We took a break from that last week, and we looked at a passage in Hebrews. And this morning, back in the Gospel of Luke, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We'll spend most of our time actually in 4 through 15, and then we're going to come back next time we're in Luke, and we're going to pick up verses one through three and talk a little bit more about that in the context for this. As you're finding the gospel of Luke, I do want to remind you, our men amongst us, that our men's retreat is about a month away. So if you are interested in joining us, uh, signups are live. You can go on our website. You can find the signups there. If you have any questions about what we do at men's retreat, it's just a great time for the guys to get together. We'll meet up on Friday, uh, late Friday afternoon, uh, whenever you can get there, we typically have uh, four sessions. So there'll be a session Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday evening, and then Sunday morning as well. We just have a good time, uh, good time uh, getting together, enjoying some fellowship. There's a pretty intense cornhole tournament uh, going on. So if you're into that, uh, you can uh, sign up for that as well at the retreat. Um, it's just a great time. So I hope that you will make plans. Uh, talk to one of the guys, uh, talk to me afterwards, and we would love to get you uh, the information that you need to, to get signed up for that. So Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. We come to one of Jesus's parables here this morning. And it's a parable, and it's been called the parable of the sower. Sometimes it's called the parable of the soils. And I would argue you could just as easily call it the parable of the seed. Those really are the three elements of this, the sower, the seed, and the soils. And we're going to consider that this morning. The Bible and Jesus' teaching in particular, it's full of these agricultural, agrarian types of analogies. And I think many of us feel like we're stepping into a little bit of a, of a foreign world when we start to talk about crops and yields and things like that, because that's not typically what we interact with. Uh, the extent of our understanding of vegetation and growing is what's at Publix or Winn-Dixie this week for many of us. So we just, we just have very little connection, many of us. Some of you are gardeners, and you know how this works a little bit better than the rest of us. But all throughout the scripture, we have these analogies of fruit and crops and vineyards and the perpetual problem of weeds and the wheat and the tares. We hear about things like growth rates and even pruning of various plants. And I do feel like I'm stepping out of my jurisdiction a little bit as soon as we start talking about all of this. Not really my world. If we're talking about harvesting game or fishing or things like that, I feel like I have something to contribute to the conversation, but I've tried my hand at gardening a time or two and typically very unsuccessfully, as many of you can probably identify. You know, as, I've, as we have at our house, occasionally dabbled a little bit in gardening and planting things, and then you, something doesn't work quite like it's supposed to work, and you're just not getting the yield like you think you're supposed to get, and you start you know, asking omniscient Google and Google searching, like, why is this not working? Really, every time it comes back to, well, what you really need to do is order one of those little kits and test your soil. And as soon as I see that, I'm like, this just isn't fun anymore. Um, and I just move on to something else. And like, yeah, and I'm just not... I'm not that into this, uh, so let's just move on. And I think many of you feel that way as well. And I was thinking about that, and just thinking about if you, if you get into gardening, you really need to understand the soil. And so there's, it's, no, 
It's no mystery here. Plants haven't changed over the generations. And so Jesus grabs this analogy that just would have been immediately apparent to them. As he's standing, most likely in a field, and they're looking around, and it's a cultivated, harvested field maybe. And so this, this was just second nature. This was the language they spoke to speak in these agrarian types of terms. And so this parable, the parable of the sower or the soils, that we'll look at today is just embedded into the culture. This is a great story. It's a parable. Um, A parable, a simple definition of a parable. We'll see a number of these as we study the Gospel of Luke. Um, A simple definition of a parable is this. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So you can just lock that in, remember that. It's just a story, and, but it's a story that's more than just a story. There's always something about the kingdom, typically, that Jesus is teaching, the nature of the kingdom. Luke doesn't highlight the parables quite as much as Matthew does. Matthew 13 is the parallel passage for our passage here. But this one's an important one. It's mentioned in three of the gospel accounts. John's doing a different thing with his gospel. He gives us a little bit different perspective on the life of Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have very similar material. They're doing very similar things, telling us about the life of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have versions of this particular parable. It's a very, very important one. So let's read our story. And as I mentioned, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the intro to this with the women accompanying Jesus, as it's titled in my Bible, um, next time. And we will focus most of our attention today on the parable itself. So chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming, bringing, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These are the funders of Jesus' ministry. They're the ones who supported his travels. Verse four, and when a great crowd was gathering, And people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, a sower went out to sow a seed and and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock as it grew up. It withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those, but for others, they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, 
Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Well, there's a lot going on here. On the one hand, this is a pretty simple parable. You have these four soils, and then Jesus explains what's going on with these four soils. So we'll break it down like this. We'll move quickly through the first part because he repeats all of this in the last part, explaining the parable. We have Jesus' explanation. So we have the parable. And then we have a little interlude, and we'll actually spend a fair amount of our time today talking about what Jesus does and describing why he's teaching in parables. There's some profound things happening here, and then we'll see the parable's explanation. So, simply put, we have the four types of soil. We have the hard, the shallow, the weedy, and the good. And I think it doesn't really take a degree in gardening to understand what's going on here. You have the hard soil, the seed is thrown out onto the path. Imagine a dirt road, a path, the ground is very compacted. It's not going to take root, it's not going to work. All you're doing is feeding the birds. If you need a little experience in working in the ground, we do have a work day coming up on March the 23rd, just good time to plug that. We generally are out in the yard and we are experimenting with all different, you can learn, you can, it will be a great learning exercise for you on March the 23rd to come and experience digging in the soil for yourself as we plant and take care of our campus here. So we all know you can't just sow seed on the sidewalk. You can't sow seed on the cart path. It doesn't work. It just won't grow. The ground is compacted. You know, these four soils, the hard, and then you have the shallow, the weedy, and the good. It helps to explain what happens even when the preaching of the word goes out, when you share the gospel with someone. I've been in and around ministry most of my life, came from a pastor's home, and so I've heard countless sermons. I've now been doing some form of ministries for quite a while. And sometimes it's amazing to me because you'll have a sermon, maybe you all hear a sermon together, maybe you'll read a particular book together. And have you ever noticed how interesting it is? Some people are just so moved and impacted by a particular thing they heard. And then others are like, what's for lunch? Um, how long is this gonna last? And it's just interesting to me, like why is it? And I think part of it is just in the Lord's providence and timing where your heart is and the message and just where it intersects. And things just hit us differently in different ways. And the problem is not the seed. The problem's not the seed. The issue is the soil that it's landing in. And that has everything to do with our hearts. And I think that's Jesus's point. He's not changing his message. The seed is fine. He's not changing his message from person to person. And we see this example over and over and over again. I think about Paul who stood up and preached Acts 17 at Mars Hill. And it says, some believed and followed, some mocked him, like you're crazy, the hard soil. And others said, we'll hear you again on this. That's interesting, Paul. I'd like to know a little bit more. Why is it? They all heard the same message. The seed is good. The soil is actually the problem. Let's move on to the purpose of these parables. We'll come back to that thought in a moment at the end. So let's jump into the explanation. Jesus gives this parable and his disciples come to him and ask the question, what is it that you're talking about? Verse nine, and when his disciples asked him, 
what this parable meant. So I think it's important just to note, first of all, that this wasn't exactly clear to the disciples what was going on. Why is Jesus telling stories? You might have a friend in your life and you ask them a question and then they just start telling you stories. And sometimes you wanna go, will you just answer the question? Like, and Jesus is in effect going, I am. But there's gonna be a story that goes with it. And so Jesus does this you know, quite often. He, he tells stories and he does this in a, in a, sometimes a dramatic way and sometimes just to, to the effect of, he engages people in stories. He, he engages them even in the mundane things of life, looking around at the crops and the fields. And says so this is kind of like what the kingdom is like. And he does this in a number of different places and times. So the disciples ask, can you help us understand what you're doing, Jesus? And his response is absolutely fascinating. I told you last week, as we took a week off from Hebrews, I said there were really two things going on. Uh, one, this text in Hebrews, as we had studied it in our men's group recently, had just really grabbed a hold of me and I wanted to share it with you. And then the second thing was, I really wanted a little bit more time to think about this parable and exactly what's going on in this parable. And part of the reason is because of what we see Jesus do with it here and how he explains things. So I'll, I'll show you what I mean here. So his disciples asked the question, and then in verse 10, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. They ask him the purpose of the parables, and Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in Isaiah this morning. So the purpose of the parables, Jesus says two things, and these are both really important. Number one is this, the parables are designed both to reveal and conceal. They have both purposes, and Jesus says that. As he's teaching in these parables, you can almost see the disciples at points, maybe not this one so much, sort of a knowing glance is exchanged, like, ah, yeah, we get it. And I think you see this even more as the time develops. You know, when I was in college, my group of friends, we were, the, we were the coolest group of friends because everybody's group of friends, you're cool and like everybody else is like trying, but you know, they're not you. And so our, the running joke amongst our friends was there are people in life who get it and people who don't get it. And if you have to explain that phrase to somebody, you kind of know where they are, right? You get it or you don't get it. Like, uh, yeah. And you know, in my group of friends, and I'm not proud of this necessarily, but you kind of go, yeah, they just don't get it. They don't get it. And, and it was kind of code for, you know, they don't think right. They don't think like us. You get it or you don't. Well, in scripture, I think we actually have a version of that, not in a sinful, exclusive way, like my friends were. I put myself in that category. You have those who get it when Jesus is teaching and those who don't get it when Jesus is teaching. And he tells them, this is how it's going to be. To you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. We need to talk about this word for a second. The secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, when you hear secret, I think we might get the wrong impression or idea by that word. The word uh, may be translated in some of your versions, depending on which one you're looking at. It might say mystery. That's actually maybe a better term but that one may not quite hit the mark for how we think and use that word either. 
the word is mysterion. It's, it's where we get our word mystery. But it's used in a little bit of a technical sense in the scripture. Here's what a mystery is, or the secret here. Something previously hidden that has now been made known. Okay? Previously hidden, now been made known. Here's a great example. There's a number of these, actually. Colossians 1.26. It says this. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. All right, Colossians 1.26. The mystery, same word, secret, that was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What was this great mystery? It was the Jew and the Gentile together in one body of Christ. That was the mystery, all right? It's not mysterious in the sense of like a mystery novel. It was a mystery, technically, in the sense that they didn't really see this coming, and now there's one body of Christ, the Jew and the Gentile together in the church. This is Colossians 1. Um, Ephesians, Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 2 and 3. All throughout Scripture, we, we see a number of examples on this. So he says, you're being given an understanding of this mystery. You're, you're seeing this kingdom play out, the messianic kingdom, the ministry that's being set up and put in front of you. They're being educated by Jesus. And then he says, and this is where he begins to quote Isaiah, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom, but for others they are in parables, so the conceal and reveal, so that, and then there's a quote, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, I wanna take a minute and let's go back to Isaiah. So if you got a Bible with you, we're gonna be in Isaiah for a moment. So if you got a Bible with you, go back to Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah, a little bit of context for Isaiah. I love hearing those pages turn. I do love digital. I, I'm a digital resource guy, but something about hearing Bibles turn just does my heart well. Isaiah chapter one. And as we jump into Isaiah, Isaiah is being written. It's a warning to the northern kingdom specifically. The kingdom has split. You'll remember after King Solomon, the kingdom splits into the north and the south. The northern kingdom would be the first one to fall in 722. So this is written just before the fall of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians are about to come in, and Isaiah writes this as this long warning against the people for their idolatry and telling them, you guys are in trouble because you have continued to disobey God year after year after year after year. And so it's a warning. Isaiah is structured. You can easily remember the book of Isaiah like this. The first 39 chapters are basically telling them there's gonna be a lot of, of judgment coming, all right? Chapter 40 picks up with there's a new covenant. This new one's gonna come in 40 through 66. So you can remember those two sections as the Old Testament, New Testament. In, in essence, you have 39 books in the Old Testament and you have 27 in the New. So it's structured similar to that. Um, chapter divisions were added later. I don't think that was uh, part of the original intent of Isaiah necessarily, but it is easy for us to remember. So Isaiah chapter one, I wanna read a few verses here to tell us and to show us what's going on in Isaiah one. 
Isaiah 1 in verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, if that's the opening of some correspondence you get from a prophet, you know, and you are kind of sizing up the size of this scroll as you're reading it the first time, going, oh boy, like this thing, it's long, 66 chapters, and there's a lot of that in there. So he's calling them out for their sin. Evildoers, they're corrupt. Jump down to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, you don't really have to be a Bible scholar to know that it's not good when a prophet calls you Sodom or Gomorrah. Not good. Not good at all. It's not a compliment. And then verse 11, this is shocking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Now here's the thing. God calls them out and says, who required you to come and to make these sacrifices? Well, one answer that you could give is who? God had required sacrifices. So what's the problem? They're bringing the sacrifices. The problem is their hearts were far, far away. They were bringing the sacrifice, but they were not bringing of themselves. Their hearts are far away from the Lord, which is another phrase that Isaiah picks up on. You honor me, acknowledge me with your mouth, but your hearts are far away. It's not just doing the thing, the sacrifice. So he calls them out. What do they need to do? They need to come clean with God in true repentance. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, and of course they will, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's this scathing rebuke and warning. Don't just bring the sacrifice you need to bring of yourself in faith. Jump ahead to chapter five. Chapter five, again, agrarian analogy, speaking about the vineyard, Israel being the vineyard here. And then in verse eight, there's a series of woes that are pronounced, series of judgments that are pronounced on the people. I'll just rattle these off fairly quickly. Verse eight, woe to those who join house to house who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. He says, woe to you, you rich people who are buying up all the property and won't let anybody else have a sliver of land to put up their little place. Woe to you. 
Verse 11, woe to you who rise early in the morning. Now, if the verse stopped there, I think many of us could identify with that. (laughs) Morning people amongst us. But it's not just rising early in the morning, of course. That they may run after strong drink who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They're giving over completely to corruption, to drunkenness. Jump down to verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So you're, you're just pulling sin around with you. It's pictured almost like this cart, and wherever you go, you've just got a pile of sin that you're coming to town with. Woe to you. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They reverse morality, those things that used to be and understood biblically as good are now being called evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are arrogant and won't let anyone speak into their life. Verse 22, again, a reference to drunkenness. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So he has this scathing rebuke of the people. This is what it's like. This is what it's like to be in Israel at the time. And this is why the Lord's gonna bring judgment. But I want you to see what happens. Then Isaiah sees God. Look at chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then note this, he's just had a series of woes in chapter five. Watch what happens here. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, your perspective changes when you meet the Lord, doesn't it? He's calling down woes on everybody else. Then he looks at himself and goes, "Uh uh-oh. I've seen God. I'm in the presence of the Holy One. And then something absolutely terrifying happens. One of the seraphim, there's a a hot coals in front of the altar of God in this heavenly vision. One of the seraphim takes some tongs, grabs a coal, and starts flying towards his head. Just imagine for a moment, you're Isaiah. Put yourself in his sandals for a minute. What What would be going through your mind? I'm done, right? This is, this is over. Um, I, I had a good run. I'm done. Uh, I'm an unclean person. The presence of God, but it wasn't the touch of judgment. It was the touch of cleansing. And so now Isaiah has a whole new lease and lot on life. Verse seven, this has touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. He's been forgiven now. Immediately after that, There's the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, he's just had this experience. He's seen the holiness of God. And God, he hears this conversation. We need a messenger. 
And Isaiah says, I'll go. Have you ever volunteered for something before you really understood what you volunteered for? Like, friends calls you, says, I need your help. Will you do something for me? Sure, anything you need. And you're like, and then they tell you what they need. And you go, hmm, maybe I should have heard that first. I think Isaiah has a moment of that here. And he said, I have a message for you. Go tell the people this. And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. All right, Isaiah, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go preach a message of hardening. You're gonna preach and the people are not going to respond to you, but this is your job. I remember I actually preached this text of scripture many years ago when I was candidating here at Sunrise. And I remember thinking, That's, you know, I, I hope not everybody like, thinks that I'm coming in saying I'm, I'm gonna be Isaiah here and you're a bunch of hard-hearted people. And, you know, I, I hope that we don't think that. But, it, you know, God doesn't owe anyone fruit in ministry. Uh, David and I were just talking this week and we were, we were both just reminiscing a little bit about the fruit that we have been privileged to see at this church, the ministry of the word as it's gone out, the ministry of individuals, seeing people to come to faith in Christ, seeing you love one another, to care for one another, seeing people reach out for counsel and help and follow the Lord, notes of encouragement going around to one another, people reading books that help them understand and follow the Lord, you guys that come to a Bible study that's ridiculously early in the morning before the devil is up, it's encouraging to see. Seeing the ministries like our ladies' studies, ESOL, uh, there's, I'm, I'm missing things, I'm sure. God doesn't owe anyone, any particular church, a preacher, a minister, a counselor, he doesn't owe us fruit. And I think that's important for us to remember. Faithfulness for Isaiah was putting the message out there. You're gonna go and you're gonna tell people this. And from a human perspective, we could say it this way, it's not going to work. Just like Moses was to go to Pharaoh and say, I need you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And that passage always cracks me up because Moses says, I'm not a good speaker. God says, that's kind of irrelevant because he's not going to listen anyways. So it's, it's not the seed, it's not the speaker, it's not the sower. What's the problem? The problem is the people, the problem is the soil. This is the context, and I think the people of that day, they were exchanging knowing glances as Jesus began to say, they're gonna hear, but they won't actually hear. And I think the disciples, it, things started to probably click at this point, and they thought, hmm, this is a very Isaiah-shaped ministry. Jesus has already referenced Isaiah in Luke chapter four, kind of his coming out party in his hometown as the Messiah. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, says, this is me. And then in Luke chapter seven, he does the same. He quotes Isaiah again. So this is the context. Let's go back to Luke chapter eight. Luke chapter eight. So this is all standing underneath and undergirding what Jesus is saying. Isaiah asks the question, how long are we gonna do this? 
And the instruction to Isaiah is, it's going to be a while, but there's hope. There's a seed in the stump. It's going to grow, and here we are pressing forward, and Jesus has come. He's an Isaiah type of minister. Seeing that they may not see and hearing that they may not understand. G.K. Beale wrote a book a few years ago that is really helpful on this. Uh, It's called We Become What We Worship. And he pulls this string of the idea of not seeing and not hearing as sort of characteristic of idolatry. Here's one cross-reference that I think is helpful. Psalm 115 It says, they have mouths, but they do not speak, speaking of the false idols and false gods. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. Hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And then this, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. It's no coincidence that Jesus tells the Pharisees that you are blind guides, This is idolatry kind of language. You've turned the system into this thing of idolatry. You're missing the point completely. So this is Jesus' explanation of the purpose of parables in general. And let's take just a moment and look at the parable itself and his explanation. So verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. This is the first first explanation of the parable. Now, one of the questions, and this was one of the questions I wanted to dig into a little bit more um, in this parable. One of the questions is, it's pretty obvious that the first soil, the one who is the hard path, cart path soil, And the last one, those are pretty clear. The first one is not converted. They're not saved. The the seed does nothing. The last one, it's clear that Jesus is saying, this is what we're after. This is a type of yield. The ones in the middle are a little bit trickier, aren't they? What do we do with that? What do you do practically when somebody seems to have some sort of outward response to the gospel, but it's only temporary? How do we make sense of that? Daryl Bach, one person I was reading on this, he says this, clearly those represented by the first soil are not saved, while the fourth are clearly among the redeemed. The debate around what's going on in this parable, the debate stems from the second and third, especially since Luke notes that those pictured by the second soil have faith, at least for a time. The difficulty comes in their being said to fall away. And in the recognition that only one of the soils actually bears fruit. And Bach says this, and I tend to agree. I contend that the parable is deliberately ambiguous here. I think what the parable is doing is calling us to look and to see and to look for this fruit that remains. I think it's important to note, it's not good news when someone falls away. It's never good news in the Bible. So if we just wanna go to this parable and go, oh, look, see, they're just shallow soil. Yeah, they had this initial response to the gospel. They're fine. They haven't been walking with the Lord for the last 30 years, but they're fine because they had this initial response. I don't think that's good news. I don't think it's good news. First John said this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Why did they leave? Because they weren't true. They weren't real. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might become plain, obvious, 
that they are not of us. It's a problem when people seem to respond outwardly, initially, temporarily to the gospel. How do we explain this? How do we explain this lack of fruit? A passage that I want to cross-reference this morning for a few moments is 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, I think, will help us make some sense of what's going on in this parable. 2 Peter chapter 1, if you've got a Bible with you, you can go turn over there for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1, in this section, what Peter is doing is he's speaking to the believers there, and he's asking them to take a good hard look at themselves. So back in verse 5, he says, you need to make, because of the life that you have in God, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So make every effort to do these things. And then verse eight, the question of fruitfulness. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or, here's our word, unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you should be seeing these qualities in your life and you should be seeing them increase. So the question is, well, what if they aren't? What if I look at my life and go, yeah, not a lot, of, not a lot going on there. One of two problems exists. You've forgotten the gospel or you haven't been saved, redeemed. Those are the two answers Peter gives. Verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's possible that your lack of fruit stems from forgetting the gospel, forgetting that you have been redeemed. This is why David each week reminds us of the gospel. It's why we continue to come back week after week to be reminded. It's why we'll take communion in just a few minutes to be reminded again of the gospel, to drop it back in front of everybody's face. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, Maybe it's not that. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So maybe, maybe it's because your calling and election has not happened. To use other language for that, it's because you haven't been redeemed or saved. It's one of those two things. A lack of fruit for the life of a believer is a huge problem. If we claim to be believers, at least. It means we're not what we think we are or we've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten the gospel. Back to Luke. We'll finish this up. Chapter, or verse 11. The seed is the word of God. I think it's just important to stop there for just a moment. The seed is the word. We believe the Bible is the word of God. We believe what Peter said 1 Peter 1, 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring, abiding word of God. This is why we do what we do. It's why we preach the way that we preach. It's why we counsel the way that we counsel. It's why we sing the way that we sing because we believe the Bible is powerful. You're gonna hear more about that next week, actually, from Adam Mercero. will be preaching from Hebrews 4, talking about the power of the word of God. I look forward to that. And then he goes on to explain these other soils. The rocky, the shallow, the weedy, and the good. 
the rocky one we've already talked about. These next two, the shallow, they're said to receive the word with joy even, but the root system isn't there. The trials come along and it knocks this plant over. There's just enough soil to get it going, but then it doesn't stick. So we could say this is trials of adversity. The next one is interesting. Verse 14, and ask for what fell among the thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. We could say this is the trial of prosperity. Trial of adversity, trial of prosperity. They just get so distracted and pulled away by the world and this seed doesn't go anywhere in the end. It's choked out by other things. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul speaks of one that succumbed to this. He says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He says, this one that used to be my partner in ministry, he loves this present world, and so therefore he left me. He left me. So four types of soils we've seen. The hard, the shallow, the weedy, and the good. As we move into our time of communion here, just to remind you, there's a reason why maybe we see unfruitfulness in our midst today. One, we've forgotten the gospel, or two, we've never actually embraced the gospel. Today, we get to put the gospel back in front of us as we celebrate communion. And just to be clear on what we believe and what we believe is happening here, we do not believe that Christ is being re-crucified in any way. Uh, with our observation of the Lord's table this morning. We believe that this is a once-for-all act, and we believe that we are coming in order to recognize what Christ has done in faith. We look back at what Christ has done, and we also look forward to remember that he's returning. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate in communion. We'll have servers that'll come in just a moment. They'll bring the elements to you. If you're not sure where you are, if you're not sure and you think, you know, I'm just... I'm a cart path guy. Uh, that, that's, that seed has never done anything in my heart. Maybe you're here, but you know that that seed has never gone anywhere. We would just ask you, just watch today, observe, spend some time considering, and we would love to have a conversation after, after this service with you today. Let me pray for us, and I'll invite our musicians and our servers to come forward. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be together here today. Lord, we're grateful for these parables and we're grateful that they speak to us in really a profound way, in a, an imaginative way, in a picture, this agrarian terminology. We all see things growing all around us and we know that there's a lot going on underneath the surface of each plant or tree that we see represented and most of us can't explain really what's going on there, but we know that there's a lot happening. And so Lord, today as we see so many who just continue to produce Christian fruit, continue to show the fruit of the Spirit. We're grateful that your seed, the Word, has landed on this good soil. Lord, we pray that this would be true of all of us, that we would not forget, we would not be short-sighted and forget our forgiveness of sins, but even as we come this morning, we would remember once again that you are the great one, the great high priest, and you've forgiven us. Let us not forget that today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.